Let's take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. Put your finger in there, and then put your finger in at John chapter 20, okay? And if you're visiting with us, we're in a series where we are walking through the gospel of John together as a, as a church uh, family. Jesus um, obviously is the, the central figure throughout the scriptures, and you really see that in the gospel of, uh, of John. John said this in chapter 20. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. They're not recorded in the gospel of John. But these are written, these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And if you have a pen or a pencil and you haven't underlined those two verses, you need to do that because those are super helpful passages. They, they help us understand the purpose of the Gospel of John. This is why the Gospel of John was written. The purpose of, of, of this Gospel is that you would believe that Jesus is God's one and only Son and that by believing in Him, you would have eternal life. John saw Jesus do a whole lot of other things. He saw other miracles. He heard Jesus preach other messages. But the Holy Spirit had him record what he recorded for one purpose. This was, this was the goal of the Gospel of John, and you ought to have that underlined. That way, as you walk through it, you can kind of see why John records what he re records. So far, we've looked at the first seven chapters. Chapter one was really Jesus is God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and then the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, right? And we're in that season now where we celebrate John 1, 14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born in a little town called Bethlehem. Chapter two, Jesus turns water into wine. In chapter three, Jesus talks with a man by the name of Nicodemus. In chapter four, Jesus talks with a woman at a well. In chapter five, Jesus heals a man at a pool. In chapter six, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In chapter seven, Jesus promises living water. Now, obviously, there were a lot of other things that happened in each of those chapters. But I, I've given you a highlight. And one of the things I encourage you to do is this. Um, memorize that little phrase I just gave you. Then you'll have a handle on the Gospel of John. Just, hey, chapter one, oh yeah, that's about Jesus as God. Chapter two, oh yeah, that's, that's where Jesus does, you know, his first miracle at Cana. He turns the water into wine. Chapter three, oh yeah, that, that's where Jesus has that conversation with that religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Chapter four, oh yeah, that's where Jesus has that conversation with that woman at a well, and she goes back to her own, you know, village, and basically a, a revival broke out. Jesus heals a, a man at, at the pool of Bethsaida. In other words, if you just know one 
major story in the chapter. It kind of gives you a reference for the whole book. And so I'll continue to give you these. Today, we'll be looking at chapter eight. Jesus talks with an adulterous woman. Now, to set up where I want to go with this uh, message, I want to share with you three great themes that run throughout the Bible. You find them both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are the, the three great themes of the scriptures. Theme number one is that God wants you to love him. This is the greatest theme by far that you find in the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter six says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. As I said, this without a doubt is the greatest theme that you find in scripture. That God wants you to love him above all else. Obviously, God wants you to love your spouse if you have one. He wants you to love your kids if you've got them. He wants you to love your parents. He wants you to, you know, have a love for all kinds of things. But your love for him is to be the greatest of all. Your love for him is to trump all other loves that you might have. It's the greatest theme in the scriptures. The second great theme is this, is that God wants you to love others. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, God ensures that the orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Obviously, God wants us to love others. He wants us to care about others. He wants us to help meet the needs of others. This is the second great theme that you find in the scriptures. He expects his people to love him above all else, and somehow that love for him translates into a love for others, that we would care about others. About 1,400 years after this was written, after Deuteronomy was written, a young lawyer came to Jesus and asked him a question. Jesus, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And without hesitation, when he was asked the question, What's the, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus didn't go, hey, you know what? That's a great question, young fella. Let me think about it. There are all kinds of commands in the Old Testament. There were over 400. We're familiar with the great 10, right? But there were hundreds of commands that God gave. Jesus didn't say, you know, I don't want to blow this one. Because everything that comes from the mouth of God is critical. All the commands of God are critical. They're all important. So, so you've asked a really great question. Which is the greatest one? Let, let, hold on here. Let, let me think about this. Because I don't want to give you the wrong answer. I want to make sure I give you the right one. Jesus didn't do that. Without hesitation, 
Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest theme. It's the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Without hesitation, Jesus says, let me tell you, young fellow, what the greatest commandment is, is that you love God above all else. And I know you didn't ask for number two, but I'm gonna give you number two. That you would have a love for others. If you were to take the entire law, whether it be the, the law, you know, the Ten Commandments or all of the laws, if you took all the teachings of all the great prophets, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hezekiah and Malachi, you put them all together, everything that they taught, all the laws, here it is, I'm boiling it down. You love God above all else and you make sure that you love other people. The two great themes that you find in the scripture. But there's a third great theme, and that is this. God wants you to live a holy life. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter six, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that all will go well with you. Deuteronomy 10 uh, uh, goes on to say, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him. In other words, live a holy life. Live a sanctified life. Live, 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 live holy. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five. He said, you, Christian, are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds, let your holy life, Shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Beloved, how you live matters to God. How you choose to conduct your life matters to God. Which brings us to our text for today, John chapter eight. This is a, a great story. It's really a beautiful story. And because we had our REACH conference the last three weeks, I've probably read this story now, I don't know, 30 times. And every time I've read it, it's just super encouraging to me. It really is one of the, one of the great stories found in scripture. John chapter eight, look at verse one. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught red-handed 
in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, you know how we know it was a trap or a, a setup? If she was caught in the very act of adultery, where was the man? Because the law of Moses said he should have been stoned also. This gal was set up. Probably the, the man that she was with was probably one of the religious leaders. Probably a Pharisee himself. Probably most of the Pharisees had been with that woman. Wouldn't surprise me that when Jesus started writing on the ground, he was writing the names of all the Pharisees who had slept with that woman. And they're all looking at that. Verse seven, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he rode in the dust. They're all standing around looking at what he's writing. I, we don't know what he's writing, but it had an impact. <laughs> when the accusers Heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, because they're the wisest. The young guys were going, hey, where'd everybody go? <laughs> the old guys went, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Whatever he was writing in the ground scared everybody. He wrote something down there that went along with, hey, whoever has no sin, then you go ahead and cast the first stone. There's a correlation between what he's writing in the ground and the fact that these religious leaders are now walking away. But we don't know what he wrote. Then Jesus, verse 10 says, stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Didn't even one of them pick up a rock and throw it at you? Not, not, not one of them? There was a whole cadre of these thugs. Nobody? Not one guy? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. <laughs> now I want you to know that most scholars agree that this section right here doesn't belong at this point in John's gospel, okay? In fact, most scholars don't even think John wrote it because the, the vocabulary and the style are so different than the rest of the gospel. And it obviously interrupts the very last verse of chapter seven. It doesn't really fit. What does fit is when you get to verse 12, okay? 
And that's why in a lot of your Bibles, it'll say something like, you know, in the earliest manuscripts, this section or this story wasn't, wasn't found. It was probably a, a part of true oral tradition, which was later added to the Greek manuscripts by copyists. So, so there's no reason to suppose that it doesn't represent truth. There's no reason to suppose it didn't, it's a story that didn't actually happen, okay? But I just wanted to explain maybe why in most of your Bibles, not all of them, but most of them, there'll be some little saying there. And um, anyway, so with that, I want everybody to look at verse 11. Jesus says to the woman caught red-handed. <laughs> you ever been caught red-handed? Maybe when you were a kid, you know, you're just busted. I always like watching, you know, like cops, you know, or live PD. And they bust a guy. And they, I didn't do it. I didn't steal. Well, we got you right here on videotape. Uh, uh, well, that ain't me. Well, yeah, it is. Look, it's you. Uh, and you're just busted, red-handed. You ever busted one of your kids red-handed? They're just busted. Remember the feeling? <laughs> you busted. Bears, all that. Jesus says to this woman, caught red-handed in the act of adultery, Go. And sin no more. In other words, Jesus was saying, hey, don't use your body in a crummy way anymore. Don't use your body in a sinful way. Quit, quit living in a way that dishonors the God that created you. Quit making evil choices. Instead, live holy. Live a holy life. Beloved, once again, how you live matters to God, doesn't it? God says, I, I want you to love me above all else. God says, I, I want you to love and care about others. And God says, I want you to live a, a holy life, a righteous life, a sanctified life. These are the three great themes of the Bible. And by the way, when you do these three things, when you love him above all else and you love others and you live in a holy way, buckle your seatbelts, man, because God will use you in ways you've never dreamed of. And you put those three things together, wow. It's crazy, God, God will blow your mind. So here's the deal. I got two major comments that I want to make about the story, and we've all already discussed the, the first one uh, a little bit. And, that, and, and, and so here's the first point, okay? God cares about your holiness, so you should care about your holiness. If God cares about it, then shouldn't you care about it, right? I mean, shouldn't you? Verse 11, go and sin no more. There's no doubt that Jesus cared deeply about this woman. I mean, here he is standing between her and a bunch of powerful people, a bunch of powerful men, religious leaders that were condemning her. These were wicked, wicked men, and Jesus is standing between them and this poor, helpless woman who I'm sure was super embarrassed. I want you to think about this. She was busted red-handed by a bunch of men in the very act of having sex. 
doors kicked open. There she is naked, involved in this crummy sin. And these powerful men in their fancy robes and their fancy hats come running in. Then she's basically dragged through the streets by these men. Her clothes are probably ripped and tattered. Her hair was probably a mess and there are tears running down her face. You got the picture? I mean, you can read the story, what, in like a minute. Don't let it become just black ink on a page. This really happened. If you can, try to imagine this scene. And to top it off, as she's being dragged through the streets, they're yelling out what she has done. Hey, she was caught in the very act of, of adultery. She's a whore. Imagine that. Then the kicker is she's put on trial. Her life is literally hanging in the balance. She could get the death penalty here. These men want her dead. They want her stoned to death. You kind of got this picture in your mind? And Jesus is standing between these wicked men and her. He stands between her and the death penalty. Wow. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? If you don't know Jesus, that's a Jesus I want you to know. I don't know what you've heard on TV and I don't know what your friends have told you, but that's the Jesus I want you to know. Here's the deal. It's really a picture of all of us. The Bible says in Romans chapter three that everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glorious Standards of God. We're all the woman. We've all been busted, red-handed, if you will. Oh, maybe your spouse doesn't know all your sin. Maybe your kids don't know all your sin. Maybe your parents don't know all your sin. But let me tell you, God knows all the sin. He knows it all. We're all busted. Maybe you've never committed adultery. Maybe you have. It doesn't matter. The one thing we all have in common in here and over in the venue and out on the cafe and out there on the internet is that we've all sinned, all of us. And the Bible says in Romans chapter six, for the wages of sin is death. It's what's due us all. Our, our sin brings with it death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, his son. In other words, you deserve death. But Jesus stands between you and the death penalty. Hey, he does. There's life in him. There's death in your sin. 
Let me get back to the story. Jesus didn't condemn her for her sin, but he did command her to leave her life of sin. In other words, Jesus cared about this woman's holiness. Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he does command her. Don't live this way anymore. Don't live in an unholy way. Don't use your body like this anymore. Go and, 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 and live differently. Don't sin. Don't get involved in that. I got something far greater for your life. He doesn't condemn her, but he does command her. Why? Because God cares about our holiness, doesn't he? It's the third great theme found in scripture. Romans chapter six says this, don't let sin control the way you live. <laughs> do not give in to sinful desires, don't do that. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Sounds a little bit like that woman, doesn't it? But it's also all of us. Instead, instead of living like that, instead of conducting your life that way, instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead. You were dead. The death penalty had hit your life because of your sin. But now you have new life. He's obviously writing to believers. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God because God cares about your holiness. God cares about it. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't, do, don't live the way you used to live. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. God cares about your holiness. You're now a part of his family and he's holy. And he says, hey, don't live like you used to live. Live differently. Live, live holy. Go and sin no more. That'd be another way of putting it, wouldn't it? Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter three and he says something similar. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be knowing that Christ is coming back and that's gonna be a horrible day, a horrible day of judgment for unbelievers Knowing that that's coming, man, what should, what, what should we do? How should we live? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Holiness matters to God. And in our story, we have Jesus between these thugs and this woman. 
It's a beautiful picture. And he says, be holy. Live holy. Go and sin no more. Don't live the way you used to live. (laughs) Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Wow. What? Think that through for a minute. We can conduct our lives in such a way that we bum out God. And we all get that, right, dads? My, my, my kids, there were times my kids just bummed me out, man, by how they lived. I mean, just what? You said what? You did what? You gotta be kidding me. Just bummed me out. Grieved me. Now I still loved him. I was always the, the I, I, I always gave the lecture. My kids got to the point where they would say, hey dad, just spank me. Can we, can we get this over? Man, you gotta be kidding me, man. It's like a five point sermon you're giving, man. Just spank me, get the pain over with. I'll take that, then your sermon. But you know what? I'd always get to the end of the sermon and say, son, go and sin no more. I didn't say it like that, but that's what I was saying, right? My son or my daughter had been caught red-handed doing something. Could have been something at school. Could have been something in the house. Could have been how they were treating my wife. Could have been a number of things. The point of the lecture, if you will, was go and sin no more. They were bumming me out. I think that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, so be careful how you live. I think that's kind of what Jesus might've been saying to the gal. Hey, be careful how you live. Don't live in a sinful way. Quit making choices like that. That might have been all you've ever known. And maybe that's the only way you think you can make a living or put food on the table or whatever it is. But you gotta be more careful than that. Don't, don't, don't sin, don't live like that anymore. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter two. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit speaking really through the pen of John. He says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Because God cares about our holiness, right? He didn't want us to sin. But, <laughs> okay, that's, that's the biggest but in the Bible right there. He's <laughs> straight up with you. But, if anyone does sin, and you will. Uh, God says, I don't want you to sin. I want you to live holy. Go and sin no more. Be careful how you live. Be holy because I'm holy. Don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And maybe John thought back to that story. 
Here are all these thugs, these losers who want to, you know, kill this gal. She's on trial. The death penalty is just waiting for her. And John saw it all happen. Whoa, 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 whoa. Here he is standing between death and life. And so here's this beautiful verse. It says, look, I don't want you to sin. But if you do, don't forget. There's one who loves you deeply and cares about you deeply. And he went to a cross and he shed his blood for you. We just remembered it in communion, didn't we? And his blood will cleanse you of your sin. Make no mistake about it. I think for too many believers, our go-to verse, the one verse we all have memorized, it's you know in our six-shooter, is 1 John 1, 9. You know, if we sin, you know, God's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins if we just confess him. And that's the one verse we know. We got that one down. You know why? Because we're always sinning. And so that's the go-to verse. If we confess our sins, here I am again, God, confessing. And God says, fine. But I think there comes a moment when God says, hey, look, how about you really dig into my word? How about you be really begin to mature in your faith? What if you get to pray at a whole nother level? What if you began to serve me in a whole different way? What if I really was the greatest love of your life? M maybe 1 John 1, 9 wouldn't be the bullet you always have to go to. But that bullet, keeping your gun. Because it's truth. He'll forgive. He'll forgive. But God does care about your holiness, and so you ought to care about it also. Now this leads me to my second major point, and that's this. Jesus didn't come to condemn people, and you shouldn't condemn people either. <laughs> okay? Look at verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in John chapter three. For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. That's not why he came. We, we don't celebrate, you know, in December, you know, 25th. Woo! You know, the Lord was born, the one who came to condemn us. That's not what we celebrate. That's not what we've got all the trees up and the wreaths up and the lights up. That's not what we send out all the Hallmark cards and do all the crazy things we do is to celebrate the day that Jesus came to bring condemnation. I came to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, the reason why Jesus doesn't bring condemnation is because we're already condemned. Our sin already condemns us. So he doesn't have to come and bring condemnation. 
He came to save us. He came to stand between death and life. That's why he came. John chapter 12, Jesus basically says the same thing. For I did not come to judge the world, but I, I came to save it. In Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. That's why he was here. He didn't come to bring condemnation. And so believer, that's not your job either. Now, we are called to confront each other on sin. And that's different. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebu rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time returns again and asks for forgiveness, forgive. Hey, look, if, if I've sinned against you, come to me. Don't go to anybody else. That's crummy. That's just evil. I promise you, if you sin against me, I won't go talk to anybody else about you. I'll come right to you. But I want you to understand something. I'll give you four things you need to think through. And I've shared these with you before a long time ago. But I think this would be a good time to do it because I want you to understand there's a difference between condemnation and confronting sin, which we are called to do. Number one, before you ever talk to somebody, and this is what I try to do, I don't always do it, but I, I, before, uh, before I'm gonna go talk to somebody about their sin, before you go to talk to your spouse or your children or your parents or somebody in your small group or whatever it is, before you ever go and have that conversation, you always pray, you always talk with God before you have a conversation with someone uh, 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 about their sin. The Bible says in James chapter five, when a believing person prays, great things happen. Pray that the Holy Spirit would go before you. Pray that something might happen before you ever talk to them. Pray that they would see the harm that they're doing to themselves or their family or to the name of the Lord or whatever. You always wanna make sure you spend a lot of time praying. I get it, you're gonna sin, I'm gonna sin, we're gonna blow it. It's how you deal with it that's important. You're either gonna deal with it in a way that honors Christ or you're gonna deal with it in a way that dishonors him. You're gonna deal with it in a holy, godly way or you're gonna deal with it in an ungodly way. The Bible says in Psalm 65, you faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds. And we believe that, don't we? So before I ever talk to somebody about sin, or before you go to somebody to talk to them about their sin, always pray, spend a lot of time praying. It always begins there, always. Then after you pray, number two is, always confront your own sin before you have a conversation with somebody or you confront them about their sin. And this one's the hard one. Because, man, I can see everybody else's sin at 100 paces. Oh, yeah. Man, uh, there's Rick Hanks over there, man. That guy's sinful, man. <laughs> but boy, do we have a hard time seeing our own sin. 
Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 17. Don't, don't judge others and you won't be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. In other words, hey, how you're gonna judge somebody else, guess what? It's gonna come right back at you. Think that through. He says, the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus isn't saying don't deal with sin in someone's life. He wants us to live holy lives. He's just saying, hey, listen, law guy. Have you dealt with your own sin yet? You pray and then you say, okay, God, before I ever talk with that person or whoever it is, boy, this is weighty. I'm gonna deal with my own sin for a while because I got a bunch of it. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something that's crazy, dad. And I was a youth guy here for a long time. Maybe, I used to see this all the time, dad's got a huge drinking problem and then he con confronts his son on some sin in their life. <laughs> oh man. Let's see, what's the word that Jesus used? Hypocrite! Really? You're confronting your kid? And you just got blatant law guy? Let me tell you something. Your son or your daughter may need to be confronted and you may have a sin in your life that you need to deal with and how the conversation begins with son, daughter. I need to have a conversation with you, but here's the deal. Wow. Your dad's got a huge problem. He's got a huge sin in his own life. And I need to work on my sin, but I still need to confront you on yours. At least acknowledge you got a log in your eye. And be honest about it. And, and be honest about getting the help that you need in your own life. So you always pray. And then you always deal with the sin that's in your own life. Okay? Number three, always confront sin in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Always do that. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. And you, you, you do it to God's glory when you do it in the right order, okay? I would never go and talk to somebody else about your sin. That sin, <laughs> That didn't bring any glory to God. All that does is poison the well in your mind, doesn't it? If I'm talking to you about somebody else's sin, that's why the Bible always says, you go, you go to your brother, you go to your sister. Hey, if you don't get any action from there, then there are steps to take after that. 
And number four, always confront sin in a gentle and humble spirit and attitude. Galatians chapter six says, dear brothers and sisters, if any, any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on to the right path. I, I, I don't, I fumble that one a lot. I fumble a lot of those a lot, be straight up with you. It's never been a good thing, never a good outcome when I have someone coming into my office and I'm just waiting for them. And I see them pull up and they come into my office and they say, sit down, what are you doing? Real gentle, real humble. Never works. And usually when I do that, it's because I haven't prayed. I haven't let God look at my own life. And I got a lot of stuff, people. And there are people out there that will remind you of my stuff. Trust me. I don't always think about how this will glorify the Lord. When I don't do those things, man, I tend to blow up. And when you look at how Jesus typically confronted someone's sin, it was with great gentleness, great humility. Here's the deal. What's the goal of confronting someone that's in sin? Let, 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 let me take us back to 1 Peter, and I'm gonna land the plane, okay? I'm gonna land the plane where we took off, same airport. Peter says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I'm holy. The goal of talking with your son or your daughter or talking with your spouse or your, or your parents or talking with somebody in your small group or talking with a brother in the Lord when you go to them after you've prayed, you've asked God to search your own heart, you have the attitude that I wanna make sure that this honors and glorifies God and you come with a humble spirit, the whole goal of it is holiness. You want your son to live holy, and they're not, they're in sin. You want your daughter to live holy. You want your, your person in your small group to be holy. When I meet with people, I do all the time, my goal is holiness, I want them to live holy. They're not living a holy life. That's the goal. Because that matters to God, you see? That matters to God. Jesus didn't condemn. Christian, don't condemn. But do confront sin. That's something we're called to do. Everybody over in the venue in the cafe in here, stand up. Let, let, let me pray, okay? Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, last night, this hour. I look forward to next hour, God. Thank you for your goodness, man. These hymns were fantastic, Lord. They were great, just so rich. Thank you for the time of communion, chance to give. Thanks for what you're doing in series. Thank you for this story. 
That's just really powerful and encouraging. May holiness matter to us in this room. Thank you for revealing to me this past week, or actually a few weeks, Lord, some areas of my life that aren't very holy. And my holiness matters to you, and so it needs to matter to me. And because of that, we're called to confront sin, not condemn, but confront. And somehow, Lord, may remember you in it all. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. amen.